0: This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Tonic, heard Saturday afternoons at 1 and Sunday mornings at 11 on Zoomer Radio. The following is a sponsored program. Zoomer Radio and MZ Media Incorporated do not endorse any of the statements or opinions made by the contributors.
1: So there's this idea out there that, you know, at any one time we have a window of tolerance and it expands and contracts. And if you have difficulty tolerating something that's uncomfortable for you, whether it's happy feelings or sad feelings or taking chances, then your window of tolerance shrinks so much that you're unable to act. It's almost like you're creating your worst fear.
2: Welcome to the new and expanded 60-minute version of The Tonic. I'm your host, Jamie Busson and we're here to talk about your health and wellness. On today's show, we're going to discuss the future of medical cannabis. Then we'll find out about mindfulness and distress tolerance. We'll look into the state of caregiving in Ontario. And lastly, we'll learn about the health benefits of dark chocolate. But first, a little bit of business. Are you one of the many Canadians dealing with chronic pain, anxiety, IBS, and other such conditions? Are you interested in finding out more about your options with medical cannabis? Then join one of 22,000 patients nationwide who've let Harvest Medicine be their trusted cannabis healthcare partner and provider. It's never been easier to access Harvest Medicine's healthcare team, education, and resources. Simply download the Hmed Connect app from the Android and Apple stores, and book your appointment today. To find out more, visit hmed.ca or download the app, that's H-M-E-D Connect, from your app store. Shaker Parmar has over 15 years of experience as an entrepreneur, lawyer, and design thinker. He's the CEO of Harvest Medicine and the Chief Strategy Officer at Vivo Cannabis. As CEO of HMed, he led the company to become one of the fastest growing, highest rated cannabis clinics in the country, attracting over 22,000 patients in under two years. And as the CSO of Vivo Cannabis, he plays an integral role in evaluating merger and acquisition opportunities and charting the strategic direction of the company. Welcome to the show, sir.
3: Jamie, thanks for having me.
2: So the new Cannabis Act is in effect, which opens up a whole new legal market for Canadians for recreational cannabis. But what people may not understand is how the new legislation impacts the pre-existing medical cannabis market. So I thought I'd bring you on the show today and we could sort of discuss that as a launching point for the future of medical cannabis. What do you think? That sounds great. How does the new act change the way Canadians access medical cannabis?
3: So the new act actually doesn't change anything with the way Canadians access medical cannabis. All the regulations and rules surrounding medical cannabis, for the most part, remain the same. I mean, There's just a few slight differences in terms of how much you can order and how you can switch your uh, authorization from one licensed producer to another. But the entire system in its entirety is pretty much the same as it was prior to October 17th.
2: Oh, okay. I guess one thing that as a practical matter, one thing that seems to have changed is supply. And I know at least that's an issue for the recreational side. Has the medical side been impacted by the changes in that way?
3: I, I think so. I mean, I think what what certainly happened is that, you know, it's very rare in our lives to see a whole new industry kind of coming online in one day. Right. Um, and so, you know, obviously there are supply challenges, and, and nobody's really thought through some of the uh, some of the process and steps that are required to get. Products in that quantity to the market everywhere all at once. So, you know, most companies that are participating in the adult use market are also the same companies who are participating in the medical sector as well. So you certainly see differentiation in how different companies have handled themselves in the post-October 17th world and, and certainly how they planned for it as well. Uh, we're lucky in the sense that you know, certain companies certainly did make medical patients a priority. have mm-hmm. offered to do things like cover the excise tax for those patients and ensure that there is adequate and ample supply for their patients. Uh, well, we've seen some other companies who have perhaps struggled to maintain their supply levels for their existing patient base.
2: Didn't they have a legal obligation to, to, to put medical first, though?
3: I don't believe there was any... Legal obligation. Okay. That, uh, that was upon the p- producers. I, th- I certainly think there is a, a moral obligation. that. I would agree that, with those that. Companies uh, should should have in, in the in, you know <laughs> should be considered of, and then certainly I, I you know I think patients should be given a, a better preferential price treatment as well as opposed to what uh, is available in the recreational market.
2: Ha- have there been uh, price changes since the new legislation on the medical side? Or has that remained static?
3: You know, the medical side of things remained relatively the same. I think there were some companies who had to figure out how the new excise tax scenario uh, would impact medical patients, which is unfortunate because cannabis right. is the only medication which patients are forced to not only pay a provincial sales tax, but now also an excise tax for the use of their medication, which places an, you know, an enormous, unnecessary burden on patients who are trying to consume a medication, which is already not covered by insurance.
2: Hmm. All right. So, if I wanted to access medical cannabis and I'm an Ontario resident, what's the procedure as it currently stands?
3: So, you have a couple of options. I mean, first thing is you need authorization from a healthcare professional who's uh, able to do so. So, in a place like Ontario, that would be a physician or a qualified nurse practitioner who's taken a course on uh, the controlled substances and, and how to sort of prescribe them. And so they will, you know, that healthcare professional should review your healthcare history, ensure that you have a condition that would benefit from treatment with uh, cannabis-based therapy, and also really ensure that you have no contraindicators that prevent you from being a good candidate for cannabinoid-based therapy.
2: I know there isn't necessarily an exhaustive list, but what type of ailments would qualify one for, for medical cannabis?
3: Yeah, so, I mean, you know, the interesting thing about cannabis is that it's a very complex Plant. So there's right. over 144 cannabinoids that we know about, there's flavonoids, there's terpenes, there's all these different molecular compounds that are all interacting to create sort of a benefit in the human body. And so each person can, you know, their, their reaction to is subjective. So what I can tell you is that there's a lot of patients who report benefits for things like chronic pain, right. uh, for arthritis. For you know, CBD, for example, for things like anxiety, things like depression, PTSD is incredibly well treated. We have a lot of patients who swear by cannabis for things like IBS and Crohn's, and others who have seen uh, miraculous, uh, you know, pain relief from things like migraines. So that's a whole myriad of conditions, and and I, I, I you know I would caution everybody that the cannabis is not. A sort of cure all to cure everything. It's like medication. So it's, for some people, it's going to be very effective and some people it may not work. And you do have to kind of try it out to see if it's the right thing for you.
2: Right. And you mentioned contraindications. So, you know, just because I may want uh, medical cannabis doesn't mean that I qualify for it. There may be something inherent in me which would preclude me from getting it, right?
3: Correct. Yeah. So for the most part, the, the contraindications don't prevent a lot of people. But, you know, if you have Serious kidney or heart or liver diseases. You may not be the right candidate if you've had a family history or a personal history of psychosis. You may not be the right candidate. Of course, if you are pregnant or breastfeeding, uh, you're not the right candidate. So, you know there are a number of things that that uh, an appropriate healthcare provider should just definitely be checking with you to make sure you're not somebody who's uh, you know has a prior history with one of these things, and therefore not an ideal candidate
2: for cannabis. Okay, so we've covered who might benefit, and we've covered who's capable of getting you along the way in the process. Practically speaking, what do I do? Do I set up an appointment with a doctor, or or can I do this online? How does it work?
3: So that's one of the things that, you know, we, we found at Harvest Medicine primarily because we, we discovered that a lot of patients are afraid to talk to their existing family physician about potential use of cannabis in, in a medical capacity. That's because, you know, there's, first of all, like most physicians don't have uh, a good training. And how to use cannabis. So they're, they're hesitant to do so. And so what I would encourage people who are looking to access medical cannabis is to get a hold of a reputable cannabis clinic like Harvest Medicine. Or if you are, you know, driven by sort of speed and comfort, uh, you can sort of download our, our new telemedicine app and have that healthcare appointment in the comfort of anywhere you wish, including your own living room.
2: So how does an online consultation work? Are, are they legal right now?
3: They are. So for the Harvest Medicine's HMed Connect app uh, allows residents of virtually sort of all provinces in, in, in Canada, with the exception of Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Quebec, who have legislation that, that prevents telemedicine to, to work well in those provinces. But other than that, residents of all the other provinces, Ontario included can certainly access the app. And what happens in that app is we've taken our really good patient-centric, education-centric experience and try to bring that to a virtual capacity. So when a patient logs in, there's a very in-depth intake where we get to learn about your medical history. Then there's actually a video conference where you talk with a healthcare professional or nurse practitioner who's qualified to do so. And they get more history from you. They make sure you're the right candidate. And then they give you an authorization. After that, you actually have a consult with one of our Canagenius educators, and this educator is really ta- you know going to talk to you about the availability of different companies and who, who does have good supply, who wasn't impacted by October seventeenth, who's got you know free shipping, who is covering excise tax, and they help you figure out the right provider for you and then they help you finish that registration so that you're all wrapped up and then usually within a couple of business days you're able to order your product directly from that licensed producer to come straight to your door so the big benefit of something like that is there is no lineups there's no waiting there's no uh dealing with you know the the shipping delays that the Ontario cannabis store has experienced and things of that nature
2: Okay, so you've touched upon some of the benefits of an online consultation. I imagine there's more. Is it a secure transaction that we're talking about?
3: Yeah, absolutely. You know, we we built this from the ground up. Being very, very cognizant and mindful of how important people's personal information is, particularly their healthcare information. So for example, everything that we do uses, you know, bank-grade encryption. Uh, we are HIPAA and PIPEA compliant. Nothing is stored locally on your device. So if you ever lose your phone, um, nobody can get access to it access to our app, you know, requires two-factor authentication. So security was a, was a really high, paramount concern for us, and we designed it from the ground up to really alleviate those concerns.
2: And I would imagine if you're discussing the various producers, you don't have connections with the producers, right? You're independent of the producers, am I correct?
3: So Harvest Medicine is a wholly-owned subsidiary of Vivo Cannabis, okay. uh, which is a producer, but what we try to do uh, well, we not try, what we do is in fact make sure that we present as objective of uh, producers as we can. So the, the mechanism that we use to do that is we actually have a quiz, uh, which we ask patients for, which says, which licensed producers right for me? And in that quiz, the patient takes everything from what's important to me. Is it free shipping? Is it strain consistency? Is it strain variety? Is it the availability of soft gels? So once they go through this kind of intensive questionnaire, uh, we've been able to take the patient's information and match it up with which license producer has most of those check marks, and then make make a recommendation as to the top two or three that meet their needs, and that is an entirely independent process of any uh, any of our sort of involvement.
2: Let me ask you. So, like, I've never taken medical cannabis, and I yeah. wouldn't know. Which of those uh, criteria to prioritize? In other words, sure, cost is an issue, but not having had the product, I wouldn't know which strain is better, and I wouldn't know if the issue of purity should trump the issue of cost or convenience or whatever. So, do your consultants help with that, or is that yeah. too personal uh, an issue? I guess.
3: Yeah, Jamie, great, great question. And you know, our questionnaire is actually uh, what we call logic gated. So, if you're the first question to ask you is, what is your knowledge of cannabis? And if you said, look, I really know nothing about it we're actually not going to ask you a whole lot more questions because it would just that wouldn't achieve the purpose so at that point we have a far more human uh, touch point right so this is where the educator would really try to understand what your needs are understand what the physician or nurse practitioner has recommended for you and then try to steer you and point you in a place where you know, it does make sense. And often we may be in a place where we're you know, putting part of your authorization with one producer, another part of your authorization with another producer, so that you have the choice and ability to see what you're really going to like.
2: Okay, well, that makes sense. Are there other resources available with the HMED Connect app and and process?
3: Yes, uh, there's actually a lot of resources available. It's something that we really pride ourselves on. Uh, We wanted to create a very patient-centric, resource-rich experience. So as an HMED patient, you can actually uh, pop onto our website and even through the app, uh, you have access to, you know, uh, descriptions and definitions of various cannabinoids that are in your plants to learn about the terpenes, to have access to a dosing journal, to have access to what we call our, our weekly price watch. So we scan the industry and we highlight where the, the good prices and good products are for people. And you have access to all these resources and a whole lot more on the app. So really, if you are curious about medical cannabis, it's well worth checking out the patients tab. Uh, on our website or downloading the app and, and checking out the resources portion of that.
2: Okay, I'm going to ask you another question out of my own ignorance. So let's say you you go on your website and it shows uh, you know a significant price difference for one of the producers. Is it really as easy as switching producers? Like, can that be facilitated in time to take advantage of the price differential?
3: So generally, switching from producer to producer does take a couple of days, but some of these this is, these aren't flash sales for the most part. Right. So, uh, you know, I mean, what we what our what our price watch is really there to do is to give people a, a sense of where do different companies align in the, you know, where do they end up in their segment, right? So whether they're looking at one type of product, are they usually at the top, the middle, the bottom? right uh, Prices obviously fluctuate a little bit, but we've also made it very, very simple and easy for patients to actually switch license producers. We actually have a, a quick LP switch form, again, strictly on our website. You enter in your name, your your phone number, your date of birth, and where you want to go, and we kind of take care of the back-end process and just send a confirmation to you what it's done.
2: Okay. You must have your finger on the pulse of what's coming down the pipe. So what sort of new products and delivery systems can Canadians look forward to?
3: I think that's one of the biggest benefits of the medical system is that you will have access, the medical patients will have access to novel delivery mechanisms and novel formulations ahead of the adult use and rec markets. So some of the ones that we, you know, we, we, we hear a lot about and, and that are being developed right now are things like topicals, for conditions like psoriasis and sort of, you know, burn treatment and those kind of things. There are delivery mechanisms that are really aimed at sort of condition state specific. Things. So that again, the topicals being one, we have oral patches or, these or orally dissolving films that a number of companies are coming out with. Uh, we have submucosal sprays that companies are coming out with, and we have things like suppositories that companies are coming out with uh, as a great way of sort of treating, uh, you know, people with, who, have, who have cancer and are struggling with, uh, you know, inhalation or other other mechanisms. It can be very, very beneficial. So there's a whole lot. That is being worked on right now, and I think one of the most interesting things that's being worked on is formulations that are, you know, condition state specific. And by that mean, is look, somebody has gone to the effort of figuring out the cannabinoid profile that would be excellent for, for example, helping somebody sleep better, and they have now made a formulation that is sleep product driven. Uh, and I think the end goal for that is so that you can run, you know, randomized controlled trials and actually show the efficacy of the cannabis-based treatment, so hopefully we can get insurance coverage down the road.
2: Fantastic. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for coming on the show.
3: Jamie, thanks so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure.
2: We've got to take a short break, but when we return, we're going to learn all about mindfulness and distress tolerance on The Tonic. I'd like to give a shout-out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian-owned.
0: At Caregiver Services Limited, we specialize in 12- to 24-hour private care for seniors in private homes, hospitals, or facilities. We provide the highest level of customized service for families looking for a caregiver or personal support worker. To ensure the highest quality of care and support, we limit the number of clients we service. Whether you're looking for general live-in care or have more significant needs related to mobility issues, dementia, or palliative care, finding someone who's a great fit is most important. At Caregiver Services Limited, our highly experienced staff specialize in meeting the unique needs of 12- to 24-hour care. For more information, please visit caregiverservices.ca. Let our family help care for yours. You're listening to... The Tonic on Sumer Radio.
2: Welcome back. My next guest is local yogi Tracy Segrati. She has post-secondary education in biology, molecular biology, nursing, acute care, public health education, and Swedish and Thai massage. She leads classes and teaches other yogis how to teach yin yoga. Welcome back to the show, my friend.
1: Hi, Jamie. I'm so excited to be here.
2: You're here today to discuss a familiar, perhaps universal problem, Yeah. fear of the unknown, and, yeah. and how mindfulness can help us cope with that fear, right?
1: Yeah. You know, And this really comes from, I think, one of the greatest teachings that I ever got from my teacher, and she said in class one day that the most difficult thing that a human being has to learn to tolerate, and I think this is a key word, is the not knowing, mm-hmm. right? The not knowing. So the not knowing ultimately, obviously, when we're going to die, but not Oh, know- no, I know exactly
2: how it's <laughs> happening. I know how it's going down. My wife, my (laughs) wife is very gently going to take a pillow and snuff me out in the middle of the night because I've become too insufferable. Anyways, go on.
1: Okay. So I've got that covered. Wow. Okay. So there's that not knowing, but you know, so you don't have to worry about that. But then all the other, all the other not knowing is just like how your day is going to turn out. What's going to happen next? Is this risk going to pan out? Am I going to be successful? Am I going to fail? That kind of
2: stuff. Right. The stuff that's out of your control. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And there's so many things that are out of our control. And I and I think the second important piece there is the word tolerate. Mm-hmm. Right. And the idea of distress tolerance and what that like what that even
2: means. You so, know? What, so what does it mean?
1: Yeah. So distress tolerance is the ability to tolerate. And that means, you know, without freaking out or. It's the ability to tolerate what's happening in your internal environment or your external environment whether it is pleasant or unpleasant, you know, without without losing it.
2: Keep calm, carry on.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. But it's not dissociation, right? Like, I, I guess I want to qualify it and say, it's not like you're going into a place of dissociation where you're not connected to what's happening at all, because that's that's one version of unhealthy. But it's also not that you're going into a place, and, and the other end of this, the other version of unhealthy is not going into a place where you're actually tolerating something that's, say, abusive or highly dis. Functional, right? right? But it's about learning to tolerate your moods, right? Or learning to tolerate being really uncomfortable uh, with trying something new, and you don't know how to do it, right? So I you used feel to, incompetent.
2: I used to be terrified of the new. Um, yeah, you know, I was, you know, I still am to a great extent a creature of habit. Yeah, but I've learned. If there's one thing I've learned, and perhaps there is only one thing yeah. that I've learned, yeah. is to embrace the notion of the new. And take chances and, and not be concerned so much about the result, but sort of work on the process to move you forward. Which, yeah. I, which is I think what we're gonna to cover today. No,
1: right? no, I mean that's exactly it, right? And what you're saying right there is that you've actually expanded your your tolerance of distress, right? So yeah. what happens in terms of our window of tolerance? So so there's this idea out there that, you know, at any one time we have a window of tolerance and it expands and contracts. Mm-hmm. And if you have difficulty tolerating something that's uncomfortable for you, whether it's happy feelings or sad feelings or taking chances, then your window of tolerance shrinks so much that you're unable to act. It's almost like it paralyzes you. Get you.
2: frozen. I mean, you get frozen. Yeah, you and, get- and that's happened to me many times over my career when I was practicing law. Yeah. Um, It wasn't so much that I couldn't do certain things. I would just sort of, my ability, I would forecast where it was going. And my forecasts became self-fulfilling prophecies. Because if you don't get out of that funk, if you don't get out of that rigidity and the stress and the fear of moving forward, inevitably... The worst result is going to happen. No,
1: this is absolutely. You're creating. You're creating your worst fear, right? right? And this thing that you're talking about is so pivotal. That where we go into, and I call that anxious fantasy, right? So we get into a situation, we're so overwhelmed with fear and anxiety that we create all these stories about what we're feeling. And the stories, what they allow you to do, is stay within your window of tolerance, right? right? So it keeps you in the same place because that's the place that you feel like you can control and understand, right? right? And everything else out there feels scary so it keeps you in that place but then it does become a self-fulfilling prophecy and so what mindfulness asks you to do is to completely go in the op- the opposite direction so you have to come into your body and look at how you're feeling right and then proceed in spite of what you're feeling So that you're not engaging in the story at all. And in that way, that actually builds up your distress tolerance. Does that make sense?
2: It does. I I think it would be helpful if you sort of explain the type of behaviors that we engage in if we're not you know, if we're not conversant in mindfulness, what are some of the things the, the mind tricks that we play on ourselves?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So there's, there's three, like number one, we'll go into distractions, right? So we can distract ourselves in so many ways. Obviously there's our phones, right? Which are yeah. with us all the time. Shopping is a great distraction, social media,
2: mm-hmm. um, just
1: being really busy actually.
2: Right. right. But busy with nothing, right? Busy
1: with nothing, right? It's that, you know, when I talk to students or I talk to my clients, everyone's always like, oh, I'm so busy. I'm so busy. And often the busyness you know, is just work that we make for ourselves to distract uh, from doing the things that we're really afraid to to challenge ourselves with. Mm -hmm. The second piece is addictions, right? And there's so many addictions and, you know, they range from mild to moderate to severe. Mm -hmm. So we're talking, you know, things like gambling, sex, drugs, obviously, alcohol, you know, anything to distract us from feeling states that we're uncomfortable with. Because the reality is, say you have a feeling, right? What happens when you have the feeling is there's this pressure that builds up inside of you. Now, if you can't tolerate that pressure. It's like a kettle boiling. So it builds up, it builds up, it builds up. And what we'll do if we can't tolerate the feeling of that pressure inside of us, right? And to stay with it and to allow it to dissipate is we'll do a behavior to blow off steam. Just like a kettle, the top would open up for the steam to blow off. We'll do a behavior and that behavior looks like a distraction or an addiction, or it looks like the third thing is that we start to micromanage all the people in our environment. So we become hyper-controlling, We try to control every conversation, you know, the way that people respond to us, every situation. We try to micromanage the people that work for us. We try to micromanage our parents and our kids and our spouses, you know, all as a way to kind of give us the illusion of having some control over the not knowing.
2: Okay. What does distress tolerance look like, though?
1: Okay. So distress tolerance is a term that was coined by this woman who created dialectical behavior therapy, uh, which is a mindfulness-based psychotherapy. And it involves kind of three key pieces. Number one is really building your observational skills. So in any situation, you come into the present moment and you observe, okay, what's happening in my body? Mm -hmm. What's happening in my mind? Like what's this feeling that I have in my chest when I'm having this conversation with this woman or man? And instead of Acting out because you're having that feeling to actually not do anything. Right. Okay. And just observe and try to understand without connecting a story to it, try to understand where it's coming from. Okay. What's underneath it?
2: Okay. Why are we feeling these feelings?
1: Yeah. But, but again, like the key thing that I'm saying here is without connecting to a story to it, because often I find when people are exploring mindfulness from this perspective, what they do instead is they, they get really curious and then they create these elaborate stories about why they're feeling what they're feeling, which is actually just
2: rumination. So are you saying then just notice these feelings, like just be aware of the fact that your heart is racing or that you're feeling warm or tingly or your spidey senses or such, you're feeling exactly get right? really like,
1: curious about it get okay. really curious and if there's if you feel like this strong urge to act to behaviorally act out because yeah. you're feeling this, this sensation yeah. just pause and try to watch yourself for a little longer okay and see okay. what happens to the sensation so this is really honing your observational skills the second piece is to yourself sit down and you can journal this or or you can you know you can just talk to yourself right describe exactly what you observed yourself feeling
2: What's the purpose of that?
1: So this allows you to distinguish between the story you're telling yourself and what you actually observed. Okay?
2: Okay. So
1: when you can start to write down, okay, this is what you observed versus you know, I had this feeling in my chest and it comes from um, the fact that I felt abandoned in this relationship when I was right. 25, for example, right? right? It's like, no, I had this feeling in my chest and it made my fingers go tingly and I wanted to respond in rage, right? You mm-hmm. observe that in yourself. You don't know exactly where that's coming from. So, but
2: what's what's the purpose in, in sort of describing these feelings? Where does that get you?
1: Yeah. So, where it gets you, great question. So, where it gets you is... It gets you to a place where you have much more awareness around what's happening inside of you. And as you build your awareness around what's happening inside you and you get really clear about it, you tend to react much more slowly, right? So there's the space between the time that you have the feeling and a gap, it's if like, you will.
2: So you're almost counting to 10, right? It's,
1: it's almost like you're counting to 10. It's just giving you the opportunity to pause. Yeah, it's okay. giving you the opportunity to pause. So the third piece of it is that you participate in the experience by letting go. And this is the trickier one. I, I always find the concept of letting go, you know, can almost be a bit trite because you go to these mindfulness teachers or yoga classes and everyone's like, let go, let go, let go. But, you know, honestly, what does that even mean?
2: Yeah, what does it mean? Right?
1: So letting go is about... Coming. Okay, so this is my
2: yeah, my view. According of it. to Tracy, this
1: is my view. Of it because I think letting go is actually brutally difficult. So letting go is about coming into the present moment and not trying to change anything about what the moment is presenting to you. Okay. Right. Really feeling everything that you're feeling. Letting go of the story, right? So as soon as you notice the story coming up, just pushing it away, right? Blocking your tendency to go into the story, just feeling what you feel and not behaviorally acting out any of your habits or tendencies to, you know, lose control in a way that's dysfunctional for you. Okay. So I think that's what letting go is.
2: It almost sounds like it's the reverse of letting go. It's almost exerting control over your feelings, right? Like it's, 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 yeah, you're saying letting go of the emotionality of the visceral response, to create a response that you are regulating. And I guess the question becomes, how are you regulating your response? Are you being constructive? Are you using that energy in a positive way?
1: So that's a topic for next time, Jamie. And that's all about being effective.
2: Yeah, I think that's great. I look forward to that. Thank you for coming on the show. My pleasure. We've got to take a short break, but when we return, we're going to learn about the state of caregiving in Ontario on The Tonic. Enjoy the energy, enjoy the detox, enjoy the great taste. Purely natural, liquid greens. The Change Foundation is an independent health policy think tank that works to inform positive change in Ontario's healthcare system. They recently conducted a survey called Spotlight on Caregivers. In which they talk to family caregivers across Ontario about their interactions with the healthcare system, the kinds of tasks they do, the time and financial commitment, and the mental, physical, and emotional impact of being a caregiver. Please visit changefoundation.ca to see the results.
0: This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio.
2: Krista Hanstra joined the Change Foundation in 2015 and, as the Executive Lead of Strategic Communication, oversees communications and stakeholder relations for the organization. Krista has close to 20 years of senior-level experience in the healthcare industry, working with both the non-for-profit and public sectors. Welcome to the show.
4: Thanks so much. Happy to be here.
2: You're with the Change Foundation. What's the mandate there?
4: We are an independent healthcare think tank in Ontario and independent is really important because it means we have no ties to uh, anyone and we can really focus on what we think is most important and essentially what we do is pick one emerging healthcare topic and dig deep for 5 years in that area and right now we are focused on the role of family caregivers in the healthcare system.
2: So how did you define who a caregiver is for the purpose of your study?
4: Yeah, so caregivers we see them as the people who provide the care in between the formal interactions with the healthcare system and actually we're talking about 75% of the care at least being provided by family caregivers. If you want to look at it in a different way, we're talking about people who are not paid. To provide care.
2: So family, spouses, siblings, close friends, those types of people, right?
4: That's right. You got it. It's the most broad definition of family you can think of is essentially whoever the patient themselves defines as their family.
2: And I understand you've got a lot of data, but there are six key takeaway points that sort of resulted from your study. And yeah. the first is that caregivers, and I found this really interesting, actually don't self-identify. Yeah. And that's what right. what what problems does that create?
4: Yeah, so I think at the end of the day, people often take on these roles as a caregiver, as a spouse, as a child, as a parent, you know, for their grandparent without thinking about the fact that they're actually playing a caregiver role. And in many ways what that means is people actually burn out in their caregiving role before they start to think that they've taken on this role and they might need help. And that's a real problem because the rates of caregiving burnout is really high and on the rise. And if we don't self-identify as a caregiver, then when you need support, you're not likely to Google the term caregiver, for example. And then on the flip side of that, if caregivers don't identify as caregivers when they're interacting with the health care system, how do we ever expect the health care providers to think of a family caregiver as a member of the team? They just don't because we don't. Identify as that, and they don't identify us as that. So, awareness around the role of caregiving and how that differs from being just a spouse or a parent or a child, we think is pretty important. I find it
2: surprising that the healthcare professionals don't see the family members as caregivers. I mean, it seems self-evident and obvious. I mean, unfortunately, you know, I fulfilled that role with my mother and, and my sister when my dad fell ill, and it, you know, it would have been. I presume patently obvious to anybody in the emergency rooms or mm-hmm. or the nursing staff that we, you know, we were there assisting and trying mm-hmm. to take care of my dad. I, I, I find that surprising actually.
4: Mm-hmm. It is really surprising and I think there's kind of two parts of it. One is that some healthcare providers simply don't think about it in that way and we certainly yeah. through our work and they and, and when we talk to them about it and they actually interact with caregivers a real light bulb goes off in a way that it hasn't before. And the second piece is they don't know where to send them for support. So sometimes we've heard healthcare providers say, I see the caregiver, I know they're struggling, but I can't even open the door to conversation because what am I going to do? They're busy, it's not what's valued in the healthcare system. You know, I think there's a real systemic issue here. I think as a human to human, we know that healthcare providers go into the system because they want to help right. and we we know that fundamentally. So I'm sure they're not feeling great that they're seeing someone struggling, but the truth is in our province, it's not really clear where people can go for support and there isn't a central way to do that.
2: You know, you've mentioned twice now that some caregivers or eventually all caregivers struggle. Why is that?
4: Again, I think it goes a bit back to the self-awareness piece. And I think, you know, when you say I'm caring for my, for example, in my situation, I'm caring for my aging parents. I don't want to feel like tell people that that's a burden to me. These are my parents. I should be doing this and it shouldn't be hard But it is hard. So we find that people, if you ask them, and we found in the survey, how are you doing? Most people will say, I'm doing okay. But when you dig deeper, you actually find that many of them, over 50% of them are feeling tired, frustrated, anxious, overwhelmed. I mean, that's not doing well, in my opinion. but, But I think people are hesitant right out of the gate to say, yeah, I'm struggling with taking care of my parents you know they took care of me for years and now why am I finding this so hard but I think the bottom line is a lot of people have uh, caregivers have other things in their lives and the balancing act of, of making all these things happen and nothing falling through the cracks is incredibly difficult
2: which i think goes back to uh, you know the finding that people are reluctant to admit that they are caregivers because i think if you'd make that admission you're making an admission of taking on responsibilities that you know you might find overwhelming
4: yeah and i don't even know if it's an admission or if it's just truly no one says okay tomorrow i start my job as a caregiver It often happens, you know, immediately, you don't think about it, you just jump into the role, and it takes a long time for people to realize, hold on a second. I'm playing the role of a care provider, and I'm administering medication, I'm making sure that they get to their appointments, I'm making sure that I have all the information about their health care condition when we go to every appointment, and suddenly the penny drops to think, oh, wait a second, this is far beyond my role as a spouse or a daughter or a parent, and that's when the, pe- so then I think it, it's, it's not so much an admission, I think it really is a bit of an awareness issue in our society about it, although that is changing. Right. And we really, hope that this survey and some of the other work we're doing will help with that even more. And and we're seeing that momentum build, which is really positive.
2: What did the survey tell you about the caregiving experience?
4: You know, we've known this for a long time in our anecdotal stories we hear from caregivers, which is that it's different for everyone. So let's be clear, the the solution to this is not a one-size-fits-all solution because, you know, depending on whether you're caring in a rural community or um, an urban community, there's definitely different experiences. And I think at the end of the day, people know that caregiving is an important thing to do. They're just not necessarily recognized, supported, and really acknowledge for what it is they're doing, which makes it really difficult.
2: I presume there are specific challenges for those taking care of people, let's say in long-term care or intensive care. Did that bear out in the study?
4: Yeah, absolutely. So I would say two distinct groups that have different experiences are those who are caring long-term. Right. So uh, either for chronic illness or sometimes stigmatized illnesses like mental illness or addictions, or are in extremely intensive caring situations. The interesting side of that is they're more likely to see themselves as a really important member of the healthcare care team, and they're more likely to feel that healthcare care providers see them in that role. So, you know, there's that positive component to it. But on the flip side, we know that, for example, one in 10 caregivers spend so much time caring, they can't even estimate the hours. That's a lot of wow. people. yeah basically caring full-time and we know that for many of them, they're either having to cut back on work, leave work, they're financing it themselves. There are many implications for that degree of caregiving.
2: How do caregivers feel about caregiving? Did the studies address that at all?
4: You know, I think caregivers as I I, I think we really understand that they're that we they are playing an important role But I think that they're feeling frustrated, angry, anxious, um, unprepared, uh, not supported, all of those important things that I think when we look at what we hope will come out of this study, um, those are the things where we think something needs to be addressed. But we also know that they believe, and I think this is really important, that the person they're caring for would be in a worse situation if they weren't providing care. So that underscores true, yeah. the importance of the role they're playing. But it also kind of leaves us with a question mark about, wait a second, why do people feel that they have to be that advocate at the bedside or at the health care appointments to make sure that their loved one gets the support they need? I think that's worrisome.
2: No, I, I agree with you. And, and does the study speak at all to where caregivers are going for help and whether or not that, that is the appropriate place for them to go to help?
4: Yeah. So we, again, I, I guess not surprisingly know that they turn to the internet. I think that's kind of a first stop uh, for many of us, for many things, but they, they turned to the internet and friends and family long before they turned to the healthcare system, which I think we found a bit surprising um, given that there are um, notable physical and mental health impacts for caregivers. But one interesting thing was that people in rural areas are more likely to turn to the health care system sooner, and we think that that's kind of um, an indication of the type of relationships that family physicians have in rural areas, which might be quite different than those in urban areas. So um, we know that they, um, they turn to a variety of sources, but the health system's not the first place. And actually, again, interestingly, the disease organizations, these disease-specific organizations like the Alzheimer's Society, a lot of them have caregiver support, but caregivers aren't turning to them. Only 9% are turning to them initially. And so, you know, there's a real opportunity there to increase awareness of those services um, that we hope will come out of this survey as well.
2: Well, I, I hope so, too. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. Thank you for coming on the show.
4: Thanks so much.
2: We've got to take a short break, but when we return, we're going to learn all about the health benefits of dark chocolate on The Tonic. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. The Benvenuto Group is an owner and developer of quality high-rise condominium and rental properties in Toronto and Montreal. The Benvenuto team is passionate about delivering quality living spaces, top lifestyle amenities, important services and innovative design tailored specifically to its residents in every particular submarket. The Benvenuto group seeks out the finest urban neighborhoods and designs projects to allow its residents to enjoy the benefits of both their property and the exceptional locations that they become a part of. The team surrounds itself with leading professionals and consultants and pushes them to conceive great places to live, to work and to play. The Benvenuto Group is currently designing several new projects in Toronto, Montreal and Chicago that will not only become exceptional places to live as an owner or as a renter, but that will deliver some of the highest levels of sustainability, energy efficiency and comfort and will set the standard for informed residents. For more information, please visit thebenvenuto.com.
0: You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer
2: Radio. next guest, Ted Snyder, is the co-author of Healthy Herbs, the Family Naturopathic Encyclopedia and Sex and Fertility, Natural Solutions. And he's also the co-author of the blog, thenaturalpathnewsletter.com. Welcome back to the show.
5: Hey, Jamie. Thanks for having me. Your latest
2: book, which you co-authored with Linda Wolven, is Chocolate, Food of the Gods. Yep. One of my uh, favorite scenes in the movie Sleeper is when, I don't know if you remember this, Woody Allen wakes up after hundreds of years <laughs> and he's in the future and he finds out that the, one of the key revelations over the years that he's been in cryogenics <laughs> is that fudge is actually good for you. <laughs> so that's what we're here to discuss today, right? You're saying that yeah. chocolate is actually yeah. good for you, right?
5: I know. It's crazy. It's, it, you know, when we first saw it, sounds like a Woody Allen script. And you know, as a, I'm a chocolate addict, Jamie. So for me, this was like the best health news in the history. Oh, of the world it's good
2: news, sir. Is it is so, good news.
5: Yeah, you know, I've been told all my life I have to cut back on my chocolate because it's bad for you. And then here we are, here's Lynn and I researching this book, and we're uncovering more and more science saying not only we shouldn't be cutting back, we should be eating more because it's a superfood. But we're still skeptical. We're not sure if we should write this book because I'd grown up thinking of chocolate as a, you know, it's a sweet, it's a junk food. Exactly. But as the science started to come in, and we see studies saying chocolate's good for your heart, so skeptical, we said, Okay, but it's a sweet, so it's got to be bad for diabetes. And then we see science saying it's good for diabetes. And then we're thinking, okay, it's got health benefits, but what good is that when it's so fattening? And then we see science saying it's not fattening. And then we get this picture emerging of chocolate as a food that if you eat it, It's good for your heart. It's good for your diabetes. It helps you lose weight. It makes you smarter. And we're thinking, okay, this is a story that has to be told. And we finally sat down and we wrote the book on chocolate.
2: Well, fantastic. And I understand the book has some recipes too, right?
5: Yeah. And, and, you know, Linda did all the recipes and there's over 60 recipes. And the really cool thing about it is that you think of chocolate as a dessert, right? And although there are delicious desserts and that the really innovative thing is that most of the recipes are for how to incorporate dark chocolate into your main courses, into your meals. So it's not just tons of good desserts, but it's also full of how to get it just into your meals, which is really novel.
2: Do you have a mole? I know mole uses chocolate.
5: There is a mole. You know, we discovered that in our traveling and, you know, Linda adapted a version of it, but there's definitely a mole. Yeah, there's tons of really good stuff. And there's chocolates in your, in your chili and there's moles and there's just like things you wouldn't even imagine when you mix like cacao nibs with certain grains. It just makes it taste rich and earthy and delicious. And you know, chocolate as a, in its pure form, you know, it's not a sweet, it's a bitter. So right. it doesn't make your food sweet. It just brings out the earthiness of nuts and grains and it's, it's delicious.
2: Well, let's dig into that. You're not talking, yeah. e- even though we're, we're touting chocolate, it's not all forms of chocolate that, that have the health benefits, right? It's dark chocolate and the nibs, right? Or,
5: That's right. So chocolate, before you process make a candy out of it, is not sweet, it's bitter. And what, what makes it bitter is the flavonoids, the same reason why the inner side of a rind of an orange is bitter. Those, those flavonoids are the healthy part, and they're the bitter part. So the more flavonoids there are, the healthier the chocolate. So you're talking the bitter, dark chocolates. So when you're doing this research, we're, we're not saying that, you know, white chocolate's not chocolate at all, and, and it's certainly not saying go out and eat milk chocolate. In fact, in a lot of the studies, these milk chocolates as the placebo, we're saying to eat dark chocolate. And people often ask how dark. It's hard to say. In the research, they're often not saying percentages. They're measuring flavonoid content. But it looks like, as a sort of general rule, if you're eating like 70% dark chocolate or more... You're probably eating a health food. You know, the higher the percentage, the bitterer the chocolate, the better it is for you.
2: Right, and and you know, if people are shopping, you know, a lot of the organic chocolates and a lot of the sort of higher end chocolates now will actually put very prominently on the label what the percentage of of the dark chocolate is. Right.
5: Yeah. So so look for look for seventy percent or more. If it's seventy percent or more, you're eating a health food.
2: Right. I I actually I've been eating a chocolate that's eighty eight percent, and and so it's super healthy. But the flavor profile is really extremely bitter. It's an acquired taste for sure.
5: The higher the percentage, the higher the flavonoids, the higher the flavonoids, the more bitter, but also the healthier. So find your tolerance but keep it over 70%.
2: Okay. So uh, you say in your book that chocolate is beneficial for heart health. How, yeah. how does that work?
5: Well, I mean, it's it really good for your heart for three reasons, and they're not, they're not complicated. They're the kind of things that look at what's bad for your heart. One is cholesterol, and the most consistent finding with chocolate is that it, it lowers the dangerous LDL cholesterol. It also stops it from oxidizing to free radical damage, and that's crucial because oxidizing is what makes LDL dangerous, So it solves the LDL cholesterol problem. It also increases the heart healthy HDL cholesterol. And some new research is showing it decreases triglycerides too. So it deals with cholesterol. It's consistently shown the study to lower blood pressure in healthy people, but even in people who already have high blood pressure, chocolate can lower their blood pressure enough to reduce the risk of a heart event by like 20%. So it's doing cholesterol, it's doing blood pressure. And the other thing it's doing that's really important. Important is it, it increases levels of nitric oxide? And nitric oxide, that's that little pill people take in the movie to prevent a heart attack. Mm-hmm. It's, it, it relaxes and expands your blood vessels so it increases circulation. So chocolate's increasing circulation, lowering cholesterol, lowering blood pressure. You put that all together and and you find that you're getting like between 20 to 30% reduction in heart attacks, in cardiovascular disease and strokes. Like big numbers, like 29% less heart attacks, 45% less chance of dying of cardiovascular event, 21% less chance of having a stroke. This is from eating chocolate. How much
2: chocolate are we talking about though? Should we be scarfing down a bar a day?
5: That's a great question. And I don't know if we have the answer to that yet the research is all over the place we're finding health benefits in people who are eating like a square of a chocolate bar a day but a lot of these studies jamie they were eating like a bar of chocolate so we're finding that you know it's healthy without gaining weight from small amounts of snacking on it to really substantially large amounts of chocolate
2: so when (laughs) i can't control myself in the middle of the night if i go for the one if i go for the one piece and i find myself eating half a bar i'm I'm getting a free pass all right thank you you. god bless you sir all right
5: (laughs) Anytime. happy to help
2: so you said chocolate helps with diabetes that's the one that kind of freaks me out explain that one to me
5: so, again, you've got to remember that chocolate's a bean. It doesn't have the sugars in it until you turn it into a candy. And, and what they're finding in, you know, really consistent research is, is that I'm talking a lot, Jamie, like we've got, there was a meta-analysis that took in 19 controlled studies. So, this is not, you know, new research that showed that dark chocolate significantly lowers insulin resistance, significantly improves insulin sensitivity. It lowers blood sugar. In fact, get this one, Jamie, we know now that people who eat the most chocolate have a 30 31% reduced risk of diabetes. So you can cut your chance of diabetes by a third by eating chocolate. And the other thing about diabetes is that a lot of problems with diabetes come with the complications from diabetes. Right. And chocolate helps with a lot of those, including like the heart complications of diabetes. So really good research at a really basic level helps people with diabetes.
2: I know when I have chocolate, I feel better, but yeah. I understand there actually is a connection between chocolate and mood and, and cognition. So how yeah. does that
5: work? So mood and cognition, is, so the different research on both of and, right. and at first they weren't sure whether chocolate was helping mood because people enjoyed eating it, right. or whether chocolate helped mood because it was actually something in the chocolate. But what they're finding is that chocolate can help what they call negative mood. When people are having negative moods, chocolate can help balance it out. And it reduces stress, it reduces anxiety. And this is not because of the taste, this is happening like at the hormonal level with stress hormones. Um, It really is helping stress and anxiety. It's dealing with mental fatigue and energizing you. So it isn't just the chocolate tastes good. It's actually doing stuff at a chemical level to make you feel good. And then the the cognition part you mentioned is really exciting. There's this growing body of evidence. It's later research that's showing that chocolate helps your brain, that when elderly people eat chocolate, It reduces the risk of that sort of cognitive decline you get with age. And it can increase memory by like 25%. There was this absolutely stunning study where they gave seniors dark chocolate. This is what the researchers said in the conclusion of their paper. They said if you take a typical 60-year-old and you give them dark chocolate for three months, at the end of the three months, their memory will be like a typical 30- or 40-year-old. I mean, they're actually talking about making your brain and memory young again by eating chocolate. And it isn't just elderly people. There was another study that gave college students dark chocolate and found improvements in brain function. So it's younger and older people. And then the next question was, what if they've already got memory problems? Right. So they did another study where they took people with mild cognitive impairment, which is not Alzheimer's. It's like when you're having memory and thinking and language problems, but not enough to really interfere with life.
2: Right. So, so it's Annoying. the type of, type of decline that you might expect as you're getting older.
5: Yeah, and a lot of people, and there's no pharmaceutical drug that's ever been studied to help mild cognitive impairment. So if you could find something that helped it, that'd be pretty cool. And they gave these guys dark chocolate, and they found significant improvement in things like thinking speed, memory, language, executive function. So dark chocolate can help young people with memory. It can make your memory young again if you're old, and even if you already have a mild cognitive impairment, it can significantly improve cognition. Like that's eating chocolate, (laughs) so that's pretty cool.
2: It is very cool. Okay, so we we have time to cover one more area, and you mentioned in your book there's a connection between chocolate and exercise, and that seemed curious to me too. What's the connection there?
5: Was chocolate exercise, and also the thing that I think you have to throw in there is the weight loss part too that comes with exercise because people think chocolate's fattening, right? But you know there've been at least six studies on chocolate and weight gain and not one has ever found weight gain in fact at least four studies have found that chocolate lowers body mass index lowers fat and when you give it to people when they're exercising we find two things in the research one is that when people eat or drink dark chocolate during recovery during workouts and you give them the studies on cycling so far, but it shows that they can cycle longer and they can cycle farther. So it seems to help you recover and it allows you to exercise more. And then the other really cool thing is if you exercise a lot, we know that exercise can actually, it can generate free radicals. So yep. excessive exercise can be bad for your immune system. We know that when you give people dark chocolate, it protects them against that free radical damage. So it increases the benefits of exercise and it, it decreases the risk of exercise. Well, helping you to lose weight. And the other thing that people don't talk about much is that exercise isn't just good for your body. It's helpful for your mind and cognition. And yep. there's at least one study that shows that when you give chocolate to exercisers, it enhances the cognitive benefits of the exercise too.
2: Fantastic. That's all the time we have today. And thank you for coming on the show.
5: Thanks for having me, Jamie. It's a pleasure. I,
2: I have a request. Please yeah, write I'll your ne- you
5: <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. Right. Please
2: write your next book on the health benefits of lasagna.
5: Okay. <laughs> I'll get on it.
2: Thank you for listening to The Tonic. You can download this episode as a podcast on zoomeradio.ca and thetonic.ca. For excellent health and wellness articles, be sure to pick up your copy of Tonic magazine. Tonic's available free on racks at over 200 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in 11 choice neighbourhoods in Toronto. Or you can visit our website at tonictoronto.com. If you're interested in providing feedback or coming on the show, you can email me at jamie at tonictoronto.com. Please join us next week on the Tonic when we discuss healthy digestion, the top cookbooks of 2018, yoga for menstrual cramps and pain, and tips for planning your holiday party. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week.
0: Please consult a healthcare professional before starting any diet, exercise, supplementation, or medication program. This has been a paid announcement.